So as we go to scripture this morning, we are in Matthew 3, again, a year-long study of the Gospel of Matthew, right at the beginning. You're going to be introduced for the first time to this just bizarre guy. His name is John, and you're going to hear a little bit of his story. I'll go into a little more detail uh, in the sermon. But he is going to do two things, and see if you can find what those two things are, as Melinda reads. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, And he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquestionable fire. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. I was out uh, with my dad. We were living in Southern California at that time. And my sister has a place in Palm Desert. And my dad and I went out one day and went into this area of slot canyons. You ever been in a slot canyon? It's an amazing kind of geographic, bizarre kind of place. Slot canyons sometimes are no wider than three feet, sometimes five, sometimes ten feet. And they, they kind of undulate as you walk your way through those. But what's amazing is as you walk through the slot canyons, you look up and all you see is this kind of ribbon of sky. What carves those is, is weather is water and wind, and uh, if you were to walk along the edges of these and put your hands on the edges of these slot canyons, sometimes they're, they're only about this wide. As you work your way through, what you find is they're just incredibly smooth. It's what the stress of the water has done to them. Now, I'm claustrophobic, and I mean that in the deepest sense of the term. Uh, you lock me into one of those roller coasters and you might just put me to bed now because it's over. But, but in those slot canyons, I get that same feeling, that claustrophobic feeling because you're looking up, you've wound around, you can't see where you've come, you can't see what's around the next corner. All you see is 100 feet in the air, the top of these cliffs, and you know if anything happens, anything happens, you're done. I was just shared after first service, uh, one of the folks came uh, talking about Antelope Canyon and the slot canyons there, and they were in the midst of those slot canyons when their Native American guide looked up suddenly and said, turn and run. Turn and run. 
and they did. Uh, and they ran out of those canyons and got out of the canyon just in time uh, as the flash flood came burring through. There's danger in these places. Part of the issue is you never know what's around the next corner, and you could come around that corner and suddenly you are facing an insurmountable kind of object there. Something that's completely blocking your way. Now, why wouldn't I talk about slot canyons this morning? I believe that there's not a person in this sanctuary this morning, first, second, first service, second service, not one of us who at some time in our lives have felt as though we were in a slot canyon. We didn't see really any way out. We couldn't see what was around the next corner. We knew that we couldn't climb out, and we knew that whatever was going on, the danger was imminent. And we didn't know what to do. That every single one of us at some point in our lives has been in that slot canyon. Well, what I want to share this morning, and I'll get back to this in just a second, hold that image in your minds for just a second. John the Baptist was a bizarre human being. Now, I want to believe that John the Baptist was a bizarre human being simply because he was a PK. <laughs> uh, for those that don't know what that means, it's a preacher's kid, and in his case, he was a priest's kid. Anybody who is a preacher's kid is going to end up somehow bizarre. I mean, I, you know, look, look at what... Korah doesn't have a chance. He doesn't have a chance. And if you saw Korah on Friday, you understand what I'm about to say. This is our 16-year-old daughter. Is they, they usually reject where they came from. They go out into the world and they dress funny. I mean, think about John. Right? He goes out, he rejects what was. His, his dad is a, is a priest and... His mom is kind of an aristocrat, and, and he rejects that. He goes out into the desert. He ends up joining this community that is just bizarre in so many ways and, and comes back, and, and it's interesting that Matthew describes him first, not you know, personality-wise, but by what he wears. Camel hair and eats bugs. PK. <laughs> but... But I'm so glad you're not speaking right now. Um, so, but what he does is because he comes out of the Essene community, Essene community believing in ritual baptism and ritual cleansing and, and believing without a doubt that the hope of the future is going to lay in one person, the Messiah. The hope is going to lay completely in the life and the work and the words and the dominance of this one human being. And he knows now somehow, spiritually, in, in his prayer, whatever it is, he knows that it's imminent, that it's coming. But he does two things in the midst of this. And if you go back and you, if you heard what Melinda read, the first thing he does is provide hope. Hope to a population in desperate need of hope. Hope in a population that knew they were in an insurmountable box slot canyon. And there was nothing that could be done for them. And yet they continued to come seeking a Messiah that was going to give them hope. Thousands upon thousands of them coming to try and hear the words of this one and be baptized so that they could believe that they'd have a different life on the other side of this. 
But, but for Matthew, John couldn't stop there. Because the other thing John does in this gospel is he absolutely confronts the powers that are creating those slot canyons. The powers of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The, the power of the temple that is robbing these people of anything financial that they have. And forcing them to live in absolute divest poverty. It's incredible that John, in this gospel, confronts both. Offering hope in one to come and accountability to those that are doing this. Phenomenal. And what they suddenly see, those that are hearing and needing hope, is the light at the end of the canyon. Because this one who is coming is going to provide something more for them. It's amazing. It's an amazing introduction to this gospel. On the heels of everything that we've talked about over the last three weeks of this, this genealogy that says everyone's welcome and, and this miracle of breaking the law when Joseph doesn't have Mary stoned to death and just series after series and now you have John coming into the picture and it, it's truly incredible that someone could provide this light at the end of this chasm. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of my favorite movies is The Edge. And it is, it is, it's probably 15 years old now. And it's, Anthony Hopkins is in this movie. And the movie is, Anthony Hopkins is a very kind of Bill Gates kind of guy. Uh, owns a huge corporation and he's up in Alaska with some of his senior executives. And what, what they're doing is they're doing a photo shoot because he's married to a supermodel. And, and yet they wanna, they wanna find locations for the shoot, so they get in this bush plane, he and, uh, the pilot and two of his senior executives, and they begin to fly up into the outermost regions of Alaska, well, way beyond where they were in this lodge, which was already remote. And suddenly as they're flying over this lake, a flock of geese come up off the lake, and they hit the plane, and the plane goes down. Into the water, the pilot is killed, the three of them swim to shore, and the story is about their survival in this wilderness being pursued by a grizzly bear. But that's not the piece that I want to talk about, just briefly. Many of you know that I love being in the backcountry. And it worries my wife a little when I'm up there by myself, but, but it's where I find such significant solace. And I don't go into places where there are trails. One of the reasons that I feel comfortable doing that is because we spend a lot of time figuring out how you survive out there. But one of the amazing things, as, as back to the edge, is these guys are wandering around this, this area of Alaska trying to get out. Suddenly, Anthony Hopkins says, almost out of the blue, do you understand why people die in the wilderness? Especially when they're lost. Do you know, do you know why that is? This is, man, it's so well read. It's because of shame. It's because of shame that they die in the wilderness because of shame. Again, I ask, how many of us sitting in this congregation this morning have come to a point of some place in our life in that chasm where we feel like we're dying and maybe of shame? I know that when I have conversations with folks in the hospital or folks who are dying of cancer, the question always comes up, why? And trying to offer them hope is a part of what we do as a church. And I want to just for a moment talk about a couple of those. 
I've had conversations now over the last year and a half with about seven of you, and my last one with, was with Craig last Thursday. And we spent a long time on the phone as, as we talked about, I'm just going to personally, your cancer and all that went into that and some of the post-cancer pieces and the fact that your greatest hero is sitting right there on your right and, and Betsy and, um, and just hearing Craig's story. That on the heels of hearing Ron Paisan's story a number of years ago, who cancer and it was cycling that, that he believes is that element that brought him out of that, but not just cycling alone. Patty Ferguson's story, Stan McKenzie's story, David Tinney and his story, and how often we hear the stories of, of what happens in the midst of these kinds of feelings like I, I'm in a cancerous cavern, a, a slot canyon where I don't see a way out. But on the other side of that, there have been, there were five consistent things. That, that, that come out of some of those stories. And many of you, I mean, it was, it's amazing looking around the congregation of seeing uh, how many of you have been in some of those kinds of situations. Five things that I think uh, every one of these guys talked about. First, first, they talked about supportive family and, and used words of heroism. And Craig, you used that word as, as you talked about Betsy in that time. Uh, Stan used that word. Others of you have used that word of, of those in our lives that in a very heroic way have just walked us through, been beside us no matter what, that, that they were there for us in, in, a, in, a, in a heroic way. But family, many of you have said, extends even beyond spouses or children. There's a depth of family, the feeling of family, even in this church, that you have gone through things together and by together, I mean together in the hardest of times and somehow found a way in that feeling of family to get on the other side of it. Importance of that feeling of family. Second is you had to have placed your trust in someone you may not know. And by that, I mean, I mean, we're getting ready to face surgery here in about three weeks and and. We've had to place Dorothy in the hands of doctors that we've never met before. And yet there's something about that doctor that brings a level of confidence where, where we can know that we're in good hands. Part of the reason that I think we can trust on this is, is that how often the doctors that we're seeing, particularly the specialists, have said, I've never seen that before, so let me put you over here in the hands of one that I know has seen this. And it's an amazing but not just that trust in the medical community. Trust in others around you to be able to, and I'll come to that in a minute, but just trust becomes a huge, a huge issue. Third, this is so important. Third is the fact that what you've done is you have felt sometimes struggling, and I, I deal with this too, of saying Placing that trust, extending that trust, and being able to share with others that you don't know well the situation that you're facing. We all don't know each other in this church, and yet there is a trust that is here of being able to say, this is the story that I'm dealing with today, and it feels like a slot canyon, and I need help. That's part A. Part B is then receiving the help. Receiving the love, 
receiving the admiration, receiving the encouragement, receiving the food, receiving the prayer, sharing, giving, and receiving this incredible ebb and flow that is part of the healing and hope that we see. Fourth, attitude. And I mean attitude within ourselves. Richard Rohr, one of my favorite authors, talks about the intentionality of attitude. That we realize that we are helpless to some extent in the midst of this, and yet not helpless. The oncologist that I know will talk at length about the fact that your personal attitude in the midst of a disease like cancer is imperative. Imperative. That what we do, what you do in the midst of cancer is visualize your body destroying those cells that you visualize the power that is flowing through you, you visualize the warmth, you visualize your healing, you take it on with an attitude that is overwhelming. First service we talked about, uh, Dwight was talking about the, the cancer march that just happened and the, the sea of pink shirts and tutus that was just incredible. You know, just so many people taking on this disease. That's the attitude that's important. But that has to combine with those other first three. Number five, the other consistent piece that I've heard from all of you with whom I've had these conversations is that there is a power greater than us that can be, if we open ourselves to it, can be, if we open ourselves to it, engage us in ways that help us, encourage us, support us, undergird us, And that is God. That there is that element there. God is not some being sitting on a throne somewhere with a long white beard that looks exceptionally a lot like Santa Claus. God is a power, a force, that's much greater than any of those things. And it's amazing that when that gets engaged with the one that just preceded it, that attitude, and then the ones that preceded that about trust and and being open and sharing and receiving. It's amazing how suddenly what felt like insurmountable blockades in our lives disintegrate. And we see around that next turn and there is light at the end. And friends, sometimes that light is death and a transition into something more, something greater. But then in the midst of that death, we're surrounded, we're supported, we're undergirded, we're loved. Even in the midst of that. Sometimes what's around there is healing. I look at, I look at Lee and how far you've come after your surgery. And just, I know that as you've nodded in this sermon, that every one of those things has been a part of that. And I can look around at many of you and, you know, and just knowing what some of the stories have been and that those five elements come into play. It's the soup, it's the ingredients that allow us to be the church. It's that combination that is this community. The danger is that it stays here. And yet what it needs to do is expand out. I can't help, I look at that picture of Kara Bennett sitting in Thailand in a hut with those three amazing human beings and know that our love and care extends 
there. Those pictures are so descriptive of, of who we are, not just here, but beyond these doors. John, we're the next element of the legacy, whether it's the Tucker legacy or anything else. Any other legacy of here, that's who we are. So here's what I'm asking of you. As we study the Gospel of Matthew, have those five things in mind. Not just about the chasms, but see the opportunities that are contained in this Gospel of what God is calling us to be. And remember, friends, attitude is everything. From the old coach, attitude is everything. Let's not be the Pharisees. Let's not be the Sadducees. Let's be the hope. Let's be the hope for each other, for the community, for the world. Will you pray with me? God, as we gather in this place, whether we've been in this church for 50 years or for an hour, the message doesn't change. Every one of us is called to be hope for each other. But we're also called to be receivers of hope. It's an interesting dichotomy. We receive so that we can give. We give and out of that becomes this incredible miracle of also receiving. I thank you for this preacher's kid, John the Baptist. And I thank you for the one who came and that we seek to follow, Jesus Christ. All this we ask. And thank you in his name. In Christ's name. Amen.